Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, the TUC takes the government to the UN over its anti-strike laws, what's happening with the unions, and how might they get on with a Labour government? Plus, it's 60 years since Harold Wilson trumpeted the white heat of the scientific revolution at the Labour Party conference. In 94, Tony Blair also promised an exciting, youthful future with New Labour New Britain. Historian Anthony Broxton joins us to discuss what kind of future Keir Starmer is offering by comparison. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Laura Kunzberg brings a state of chaos, a three-part BBC documentary about the years since Brexit. It's no longer news, but is it too early to be effective history? And what does it tell us that we didn't already know? Let's meet the panel. First up, commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. So the government has reached a preliminary third country deal with the EU to access its border agency Frontex. This follows... Why does that sound like a, like a bra? <laughs> <laughs> this follows the bespoke deal to join Horizon Europe, which funds research and innovation. How many EU agencies are we planning to crawl back to on worse terms than we have before? Many, 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 many okay. <laughs> um, I mean, we, we've also done, we've retained the safety kite marks. Um, we've delayed um, uh, import checks for the fifth time. I mean, there's, there's just going to be a huge series of these things. I suspect we will eventually go back to the Galileo programme because I hear very little. Have you noticed how little we hear in the last two years about the government's own UK satellite programme on which they splashed billions to buy a company only to then find out that those satellites fl fly at the wrong altitude? for GPS. Um, was, was Chris Grayling involved in that? <laughs> that <laughs> Amazing. Like, now, Amazing you yeah. know, that was all shaps, I think. Um, so, <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it, we basically we used to sit on the board of Vodafone and, and then we decided that if we resign and just take out a series of pay-as-you-go contracts, <laughs> that would give us similar influence. Um, there was a fantastic example today. Um, do you remember uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's um, thrilling British uh, phones with British chargers speech? I think we discussed it at the time. It was about a year ago. Well, we're talking ago. about great speeches it later, was about so that a was year one ago. of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he stood up uh, uh, in Parliament and said, another benefit of uh, Brexit has come into the horizon. The crazy you are forcing electronics companies to all have the same kind of charger. 
which seems to me like a perfectly sensible... This is his famous white lead of technology. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I said at the time, well, we're going to end up with a charger the EU wants anyway, because manufacturers are not going to make three kinds, are they? One just for the UK market. And lo and behold, today, the new iPhone is out, and it will comply with the EU's request for everything to be a USB-C charger, which is fantastic. Like, to be able to charge everything with one charger. My boyfriend did a little fist pump when he found out he was going to get a USB charger, which I thought was USB-C charger, yeah. which I thought was a bit, a bit, a bit nerdy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, as long as a British one. Yeah. Yeah. You've spent <laughs> years paying Apple like loads of money for the newest yeah. charger that yeah. keeps breaking and you can only get from Apple. Yes, it is a small victory. A small win this morning <laughs> for tech geeks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that is Zoe Grunewald, policy and politics correspondent for the New Statesman. Hi, Zoe. Hello. The government has announced that it is going to ban single-use vapes. Uh, they are, I'm used to just disagreeing with the government all the time. Um, they aren't clearly aimed at kids. They're such an environmental nightmare that they're already banned at like Glastonbury and Reading and so on. Is this a rare good idea? I have personal feelings about this, which I do think it is a good idea because... I have so many friends who were smoking and then decided to use vapes and are increasingly use single-use vapes and they are so addicted to them. They tell me they wake up in the middle of the night and start smoking. Like, it's way worse than when they were smoking cigarettes. And they're all worried, but they, none of them can seem to stop. And I think it is the single-use aspect of it as well. They're collecting so many, all these different flavours that's really appealing and brings wow. people in. Yeah, I know. I didn't know. I thought it didn't know it was affecting smokers because I use the vape. Um, but it's like a... You know, it's like a more expensive one that you refill because I just hate the idea of like throwing them away. Mm. Um, and I know there are people that just whatever vape, they just do it all day long. But I didn't realise that there was a whole like older market for the disposables. I think there is. And like, I think part of it is, oh, we used to smoke and actually now everyone's vaping and it's cool and it tastes good. You get all these different flavours and they're fun. And it's become actually a bit of a problem. And yeah, loads of people seem to be struggling with how many vapes they're going through. It's expensive, obviously, to keep buying single use vapes and it's terrible for the environment. So I actually think it's quite a good thing. Um, other people may disagree and may, they may worry about what it will do to ex-smokers who are now to vapes, but actually, the single-use thing to me—I mean, it just sounds terrible for the environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like if they were banning vapes, I'd probably be—I'd probably think that was a terrible idea, and so would uh, the NHS. Mm. But they're not. No, they're just yeah. banning these kind of like the crappy, brightly coloured ones. And there's an amazing stat I think that, that the amount of lithium in the batteries discarded yeah, yeah. was enough to kind of for like four and a half thousand electric cars or something. Oh, gosh, yeah, because lithium does not grow on trees. I don't know where it comes from, but I know it doesn't grow on trees. Um, so Is you don't want to waste it. The guy on Talk TV would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's quite ironic that the one bit of green policy the government seems to be committed to is the bit that's going to piss off young people the most. But that's fine. I wonder if there'll be a big public health campaign against it at some point. That might be the next step to teach people whether vapes are healthy or not. Well, all of vape. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I mean, some clarity on that. It's fine. Mm -hmm. but I think with these, you could just sort of, you could just sort of ban them because the, pe the, the yeah. whole reason for their existence essentially is is for people to cut down on on real facts. And they're still yeah. relatively cheap, I suppose. You know, I mean, I I was a proper that, like forty a day smoker, and and I 
had quit once and then took mm. it up again. And I thought I would never be able to quit. And without vaping, I wouldn't have. Mm. And with vaping, I did. And it's now been 10 years and I wouldn't have managed to do it without mm. the vape. So it's a good thing. I mean, we know as much as we know, we're, we're not going to know about chronic conditions until they've been around for many, many more years, I would think. Mm. Our guest this week is a journalist and author who runs the Tides of History Twitter account covering labour history and working class culture. His first book, Hope and Glory, Rugby League in Thatcher's Britain, is out now. Anthony Broxton, welcome to the show. Thanks for the plug. Appreciate, appreciate it. We Good always begin here. with the plug. Um, so what does rugby tell us about the politics of the 80s? Because I was very intrigued. Someone I've followed your Twitter account for a long time. We're really interested in the stuff that you write about um, and that this was the subject of your first book. I wonder yes. Um, well... I think at the last election, there was a real interest in a lot of rugby league towns. So for people who aren't familiar with rugby league, it's very popular in the north of England. It's very popular in areas that became the Red Wall. And if you remember, there was this uh, strategy that the government had called Working to Man, where they were going to go to the north and get these rugby league supporters and convert them from being Labour to Conservative voters. And they were quite successful at doing that, as we know, with the Red Wall. And I thought that would be an opportunity to explore, essentially our fascination with Margaret Thatcher, as we still are as a country, and the role that rugby league played in that. It was obviously a really important time for the sport because it was being played out against a lot of industrial change, a lot of unemployment. But through that, there was also real positive creativity within rugby league itself. You see the rise of professionalism. You see the rise of uh, women in the game and black players, which is something that people don't often associate with the North and Rugby League. Mm. Well, there's two of them on the on the cover. Mm. Um, who who are they? So on the cover, uh, which I've got here, um, Ellery Hanley and Martin Afire. These are the two key players, you know, of this generation, probably in the history of the game. Really huge superstars of the sport. Ellery Hanley's an interesting one because he emerges at a time in the early eighties, about nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two. Where you have real, <laughs> yes, and there it is. Ellery was a child of the Windrush generation. His parents moved to this country to work. I think it was in the NHS. And he emerges at this time playing for Great Britain when you have politicians such as Enoch Powell and others saying he will never be British. Mm. He shouldn't be in this country. We should be paying people like him to leave the country. He becomes an absolute, you know, the best of British, the, one of the best British athletes of his generation. And sets a template for modern sport. You know, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke. And he's sort of, they're ahead of footballers in Premier League in this time. So that's the sort of story that I want to tell about, you know, a, a child of that generation mm. who came to this country, sees himself as British and became a really good export for this country. So it's also, this is like a, a, re, a sort of a, a proto-Red Wall story then? Well, it starts, it start, you know, the introduction, I look at the sort of from Thatcher to Brexit because I wanted to situate this story in the contemporary, because you ha the, the the idea for the book probably came in you know, 2019 election. I was in Lee, and someone handed me a leaflet that just had a picture of Margaret Thatcher's handbag on it, and it just said, "Don't let her finish the job." And it was a Labour leaflet, and I just got thinking, you know, we're 40 years on from Margaret Thatcher, and Labour are still using this person, this image, this symbol to try and communicate to these voters who ended up rejecting Labour. Mm -hmm. And it just got me thinking, what is the story of Britain in, in the North in the 1980s? It isn't just about the, the hardship, which I do look at in the book. It's also like about, say, 
revival, survival, the sport survived when people said it wouldn't. It embraced commercial aspects. It, mm. it became a real template for the Premier League football through its professionalism when a time when people weren't as interested in football because of hooliganism, hooliganism and other things. So, yeah, I really wanted to capture that sort of northern spirit, you know, that isn't just sort of the negative that you often hear. <laughs> about those areas. First up, the TUC is holding its annual congress this week. The federation of the country's biggest unions is busy preparing for what could be a new government that's slightly nicer to them, but they're also still fighting the current one. They're reporting the government to the UN Workers' Rights Watchdog over the recently introduced strike law. Alex, the law applies to sectors like health, education and transport to Mm. impose minimum service levels on strike days. How strictly is that Enforced. I mean, it's only just come into effect. I mean, we don't know yet, is the answer. What are the, it hasn't um, been used yet. What are the penalties? I mean, the, the idea is that uh, it opens up unions to being sued um, for damages from either uh, private or public organisations, and it opens up individual employees to sanctions, including being sacked if they don't turn up when when they're meant to turn up. Looking behind the legislation, I'm not sure how effectively it can ever be used because, and this is something we we have, I think, touched on before. We're talking about organizations. If you look at the railways, if you look at the NHS, these are organizations which rely to a huge extent on staff's goodwill. Actually, if staff simply refused to take overtime, turned up on time and left on time, you know, and took their regulated lunch break and their holiday days and basically just worked to rule, those, you know, the railways, the, the NHS would just fall apart at the seams. So I don't know how much of a realistic threat it is. It's clearly there to appeal to a particular slice of Tory voter, I think. My sense is it's a category error, uh, and it goes back to actually the North during the Thatcher mm. years, because I think that is the the muscle memory of the Tory party is those years. So they look at being tough on unions. You know, you, you've got Greg Hands sort of tweeting about how Labour are, you know, the party of strikes uh, and tough on gen- soft on strikes, tough on the general public. You might have been able to do that when we, you were talking about a very small group, just a few thousands miners, you know, in one industry, in one particular geographic area. But when you're talking about nurses, teachers, postal and rail workers, barristers, doctors, civil servants, cleaners, ambulance drivers, bus drivers, refuse collectors, firefighters, I'm forgetting many, I'm sure, all of whom have had to resort to um, industrial action in order to be heard, I don't know that they can separate them from the general public. That pretty much is the general public. So I don't know to whom they're appealing other than, I guess, people who don't do any of those jobs. Podcasters. Podcasters. (laughs) Yeah, I I fucking hate strikes. Uh, The the TUC have done two two separate things here. They've approved Mm. a motion of a strategy of non-compliance. They've also claimed that the law falls short of stipulations by the International Labour Organization, the UN's labour watchdog. So if the ILO considers the complaint, what can it do about it? 
very little. Okay, right, yeah. so it doesn't have teeth. It doesn't have sanctions. It can issue reprimands. Basically, it can say this is bullshit. But the point is, we are signatories to the ILO memorandums of un understanding, and those. MOUs are interweaved into both our membership of the European Convention of Human Rights and the trade and cooperation agreement with EU. So um, the, the legal opinions that I have seen, um, there's a very good one from Professor Keith Ewing, who is president of the Institute of Employment Rights, and Lord John Hendy Casey, who is probably the country's foremost employment lawyer, that concludes inadequate and unexplained claims about what happens in other countries will not protect the bill from legal challenge. So if the ILO deem that it's excessive, which they will because they've already given a preliminary opinion that says if this goes through, mm -hmm. we will say it's bollocks. Um, because um, minimum standards legislation like this is meant to be done in consultation with the unions. So it's meant to be an agreed thing. You get together with the unions and you say, so what are essential services? Do we agree that they include schools? It's a contentious thing, right? They might include fire services and hospitals, but not schools. And then you say, what are the minimum service levels? And you agree them with the unions. That's what the legislation envisages in all of those countries they, the Tories mention. They want to do it unilaterally. Right. They want to turn around and say, we consider now legal aid barristers an essential service and you have to provide minimum service levels and the ILO is likely to say no to that which then creates prog problems with the EU in terms of level playing field. Sorry, uh, Labour's promised to repeal this legislation in office as part of a package of pro-worker reforms announced by Angela Rayner. Uh, this includes a promise to ban zero hours contracts. I mean, this is quite, we often complain that Labour's not sort of being specific enough, not offering enough. This seems quite meaty. How's mm. it gone down with the unions? Mm. So um, Rachel Wearmouth, who often appears on this podcast yeah. and is um, a colleague and a good friend, wrote a really good piece about this this week because... Um, well, to answer your question, it's gone down very well with the, with the unions. I mean, the workers' rights package is something the unions have been pushing for Labour to keep hold of. Um, and it's been somewhat of a trade-off. We haven't seen the relationship between Starmer and the unions be you know, all that um, coherent all the way through. Although they broadly do back Starmer, we've seen a little bit of disquiet here and there over certain things. Mm. And um, on workers' rights, it's almost been a little bit of a trade-off um, that the unions were like, Okay, we want workers. We want the workers' rights stuff, and then Starmer and his leadership have said things like, "We won't create wealth taxes," for example, and you get that kind of trade-off. And Angela Arena has been kept in Starmer's close team. We saw she um, got the promotion in the reshuffle. She's now got the levelling up brief and she's still kept her workers' rights stuff. And she's been like the darling of the TUC this week. So she stood up and she announced all this huge package of workers' rights reforms. Um, but it's interesting that he's put Rainer there because, great, she's a great um, go-between between the leadership and the unions. They really like her. But if this did fall through, if Starmer did do a U-turn, which he's, you know, 
sort of becoming slightly known for, who's going to be left holding the can? It could well be Angela Rayner. She's now the face of these packages almost. So in that way, she's, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to think that will necessarily happen, apart mm. from the fact they're not in government yet. So they haven't had, they, they will have had think tanks and researchers looking into their proposals, but it hasn't been tested by the civil service, for example. And, you know, loads of things can happen within a year. So it's not absolutely set in stone. Raina says it is and she's made her promises, but, you know, who knows what could happen. And I do think it's interesting. You know, it's almost like a poison chalice. It's great that she's got that, that you know, that um, power and that she's been able to say all this. But if it goes wrong, she's going to be probably the one left picking up the pieces. But she is the right choice for this. I mean, I think there's talk of like, oh, is she going to be reshuffled out or whatever? It's like she is the union whisperer. She's got those connections. Mm. And Starmer is like strikingly disconnected, mm. doesn't seem to have any affinity with the union movement. So it sort of has to be. I can't imagine who else it would be if it wasn't Rayner. Mm. Uh, well, of course, I mean, the other high profile soft left union person in there was Lisa Nandy and she's been demoted now. So Angela Rain is sort of carrying the candle for both of them, mm. um, which, you know, she's a great person to do it. She's got really strong li links to unions, strong links to the North. She's got a great story. Her speech was really good. I mean, she's a great, I think she's a great public speaker. Um, and I think she talks to a, to a group of people really well. Um, but you're right. I mean, Starm is clearly trying to emulate a little bit of this sort of Blairism, this sort of reheated Blairism. Um, and what Blair did was distance himself from the unions quite a lot but Starmer can't really afford to do that and for some of the reasons that Alex was just saying the public appetite for strengthened workers rights and their unions is, is really big at the minute mm. you know people including among Tory voters including, I was looking yeah. at a yeah. poll yeah. yesterday well people are saying I haven't seen my pay packet grow and why am I working harder for less and I think Starmer knows that so he really needs to keep these people on board um, you know the appetite isn't there for him to just say sod it with the unions I don't need them because he does need them mm. Certainly, I mean, we can't we can't do all of the history in a short period of time. Do a few years, <laughs> but obviously, people remember like uh, a lot of people of that nature will remember kind of you know Blair sort of taking on the power of the unions. Mm. Now, the Labour Party begin with the unions. Uh, the clues in the name. People on the Labour left often point this out. Um, <laughs> when did their sort of when did their power begin to wane in the party? Like, was it? Was it a much longer process than just Blair coming along and going? Yeah, absolutely. I think people who were embedded in the trade union movement and people on the left, like say, will say the trade unions never really had much influence over Labour governments. They were always in battle with each other. Go back to Harold Wilson in Place of Strife, where he tried to rein in some of the trade unions and reform it. Some people say, had he been able to do that, Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have succeeded. Barbara Castle used to say things like that. On the Tony Blair point, I think he was the most, he was the Labour leader who wasn't of the trade union movement. He very much took them on over certain issues in the 1980s, over the changes that Thatcher had brought and accepted them within Labour. And he also essentially created new Labour as a framing device for the public against old Labour. And old Labour was very much tied to the trade union. So it was inevitable that he was going to pitch his message beyond the trade union movement. Some people didn't like that, but some people also liked the fact that there was a minimum wage. They had other issues in that area. John Prescott was there who's, you know, people have been saying Angela Rayner is the mm. John Prescott for Blair mm. to Starmer. And I think you saw a bit of that yesterday with Angela Rayner. A personal story she talked about being brought up in a council house or getting a council house later in life, uh, working in the public sector, rooted in the trade union movement, there is a sort of message that 
Starmer can build his relationship around through her. Well, the minimum wage point is a good one because you don't have to be super close with the unions to do things for workers' rights. I think they're Tony, not synonymous. Yeah. Tony Blair was essentially saying, look, the, the unions will get as much influence on the party as the top businesses will and other stakeholders. They won't get any special treatment. Now, I don't think Starmer would do that. I actually think his attitude towards the trade unions is different. We're in a different climate, like you say. 94 to 97, when Tony Blair is really creating new labour, there's still a lot of hostility to the trade unions. There's a lot of thought around, do we really need trade unions to do what we want to do? Government can potentially do it. I think there has been a move against that with, with all the industries that you're talking about, they're on strike, which means that Starmer will not be able to define his leadership against the trade unions. As Blair I, I read somewhere that unions uh, in the last two or three years are growing faster than they have for 30 years in terms of membership. So, I mean, they are associated... Broadly speaking, with with the left, mm. you think of the, the Durham Miners Gala is the great yeah. celebration of the left, and but the history of it is so complicated because in the seventies you've got some of the big union leaders were literally members of the Communist Party, mm -hmm. but then Ernest Bevan, one of the big giants of the Labour right, came from almost like twenty years I think with the TGWU, yeah, and so the unions were a huge force on the right. Has that changed over over time? Are the, is the is the sort of median union leader well, now more? more left than they used to be or i don't i'm not sure about where the current lot leadership sit on that spectrum i think looking at the labor party historically you're right there would have been a lot of people george brown's another one and james callahan they all came through the trade union movement they're all seen as people on the right i don't think you could really be successful within the labor party on any faction, in any wing, without having roots in the trade union movement, which is different now. There's right, not yeah, as yeah. many people come. Angela Rayner, again, is a rare example of someone who's come through that that system rather than through becoming a lawyer and going to university. I think, in answer to your question about when it shifted from right to left, you look potentially at the Tony Benn uh, rise in the 1980s. He saw getting trade union members to back his campaigns as a real you know, fill it for him that he could become the deputy leader through through the votes of trade unions and trade union blocks. And he appealed to them to form this sort of coalition. And that's where you sort of get a divide between left and right and the trade unions become part of that. So we do just talk about the unions and almost seen as if they are, that is, the unions as a block equals the Labour left or whatever. But obviously they don't agree. They didn't all have the same opinion of Corbyn. They didn't all have the same take on, on Brexit. And what we've seen recently, for example, with Starmer rowing back on new oil and gas licences, his plan to sort of block those that Sunak had announced, is the unions, they don't take progressive lefty positions, you know, when when jobs are at stake. Is Do you think that there is a problem for the green agenda or, or parts of the green agenda? Obviously, the job creation, great. But I mean that there, there is a, there's going to be resistance mm. there. I think what was really interesting about when um, GMB, the GMB union leader came out like, sort of against uh, Starmer's announcement that they were, Labour were going to ban new oil and gas exploration in the North Sea was because, well, I don't think the communication was very good from Labour's mm. perspective there. Mm because it totally spooked the union leaders who thought, hang on, this is 30,000 jobs or however many it is. What do you mean? <laughs> like, what should these people do? And actually what Starmer and Ed Miliband and you know, everyone involved in that decision should have done is said, we are going to transition
transition. We're going to do, we're committed to our green transition and these jobs are going to be still be there and they're going to become green jobs and we're going to work with you to do so. They were worried this was going to be a whole miners situation again, where mm. they were going to say these this area has closed and you all have to find new jobs. But they weren't. Labour wasn't saying that. And I do think GMB and the Labour leadership have come to more of a coherence on this issue. Right. And I think Labour have learned their lesson a little bit on that because that was quite messy for Starmer at the time. Because having a you know one of the major union bosses sort of coming out attacking your policy um, was is not obviously very good for any for any leader. One of the big challenges for Starmer will be how they are going to sell this green transition in a way that keeps unions on side. And as you say, lots of unions are, you know, committed to net zero. I think the vast majority of them understand that we have to transition. I mean, all of them understand that we have to transition and that they want to do that, but they also want to see jobs be protected. So Starmer has to sell the green transition vision in a way that is coherent with that. Um, and it's quite a difficult thing to sell because it's quite technical. Mm. It's You've got to talk about investment in skills and it's... A whole load of different complex policy areas and it's not that sexy the public are kind of a bit confused by it no one really knows what it means and it's something that the Tories can exploit because we've already seen them do that with some of green policy so I think what we're going to see probably quite a lot at Labour Party conference probably in the manifesto is them really unfurling this green prosperity plan this green transition and what it means and the, the frame through which they'll do that I'm sure is what it means for jobs and what it means for growth. Um, Alex, one thing that struck me, I suppose the most prominent union leader at the moment is Mick Lynch at the RMT, right? Mm. So he's he's a real warrior for his In members. terms of public profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah rather than Power, right. importance in right. the union. But right. as a warrior for his members, like mm. he's great at that, basically his job. And his opinions when it comes to like Brexit or Ukraine or like anything to do with foreign policy... Seem pretty terrible uh, in my eyes. Um, but they don't really seem to matter. Like, it doesn't seem to be a big problem that he's got, you know, some sort of crankish views on these other issues because it doesn't seem to, you know, he doesn't seem to have any power to exercise those. Mm. And thinking back just a, not that long ago to sort of Len McCluskey during the, the Corbyn years, yeah. he really wanted to be a kingmaker. He really wanted the power. Mm. This is mm. a huge deal. And Sharon Graham ran to replace him in 2021 and she yeah, explicitly said, look, I'm more about members' interests, less about Labour politics. Has that been good for Labour and Unite? I think to so. To have a less you know, activist I, leadership yes, in the political I know, sense. I know exactly what you mean. And if, first of all, it's peculiar to this country. Um, because, uh, of course, in most countries where you have several hues of left-wing parties... You know, the unions wouldn't, I mean, would a union in Greece support PASOK, Syriza, or the Communist Party? So you don't get that really direct link, right? Right. It's only in situations where there's basically one binary choice, where you get this weird consternation. And I think it is healthy. And I say this as a passionate advocate of union membership. And someone on the left, uh, to the left of Starmer politically. Um, but I think it is good because I think as Labour gets closer to government, a distance needs to develop because at some point they will need to be sitting at the table on the other side of unions. Mm. And if they're in bed together, Labour can't do its job 
And the unions can't do their job properly of representing their members actually as strongly as they could be. Absolutely, they should be collaborative. But there will come a point, hopefully in the next few months, where labor will represent the employer and the unions will represent the employee. And there needs to be a level of detachment there for that relationship to actually be healthy. Um, So, I, I mean... It will be different because I think in a negotiation between a union and a labor government, the only question is, this is what I want. How much can you give me? In a negotiation between a union and a Tory government, there's all kinds of other subtext things going going yeah, yeah. on that are basically to do with, I want to destroy you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that have nothing to do with the negotiation that are actually quite unhealthy. So, yes, I think this is a good thing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Um, I really like this one because I hadn't thought about it before um, because it scares me. Uh, Jim Sinstat, (laughs) how would slash should a Prime Minister Keir Starmer tackle a President Donald Trump? Wow. God forbid. (laughs) Zoe, you you picked this question uh, from, from the options. What do you think? I mean, obviously, it would be really bad if Donald Trump won in 2024. Like, just fucking awful. How does Starmer play that? Mm. So it's interesting because the shadow foreign secretary, David Lammy, was asked pretty much about this the other day. And he said, we have a special relationship with America and whoever is in office, we will continue to have that special relationship with America. Genius. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Stop> <laughs> Foolproof, Lammy, well done. Just pull yeah. that card. Um, so it sounds like they are preparing for the potential of a Trump government mm. and... That, I think, is the sensible thing to do. You know, we're seeing it a little bit at the minute with how Sunak is responding to China and Beijing with all these um, accusations of uh, espionage in Westminster. What do you do with your enemies? What do you do with your, you know, political enemies? How Mm. do you deal with them? Do you keep them in the tent? Do you try and keep them on side? And we do live in a world where we are just a tiny island. And we very much, I think a lot of the Tory right like to pretend we're, you know, very powerful and still the great heydays of the empire, but we're not. And increasingly... Walking Britain down. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, You know, we need to collaborate with especially these huge superpowers. And one of the things that Sunak has been trying so desperately to do is to get a trade deal with the US because we we left the EU saying, oh, look at all these great trade deals we're going to get. And the EU, still Biden is just kind of not playing ball. But we need that. And, and just like we need China, China economically gives us a lot They import a lot. We export a lot to them. Um, A big proportion of our students are are from China. You know, it's the sad fact is we do need to 
play nicely with these countries. And of course, there's an extent to which you have to put your hands up and you have to say, you have to speak out about bad behaviour. But um, we're in a compromised position. We're not as powerful as we once were. Mm. What's weird, what's really interesting about the way that you frame that Mm. is that we're talking really about the change in leadership in America is such a huge thing because because normally you wouldn't talk about America like you're talking about China or Russia. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. where there's a lot of continuity. Yeah. It's literally the like stakes are so high. Yeah. A Trump America is suddenly moves into that column mm. um, from the kind of regular column, and that before when Democrats and Republicans, you know, oh, handed oh, over the reins, yeah. oh, you God. didn't suddenly feel like you were dealing with like. A dictator. A whole other thing. Like, how do we <laughs> I have deal to with say, I think that's where Lamy's response is actually true, mm. in that a change of president does not move the whole of America mm-hmm. into that column. There is still a body of, you know, departments and civil servants and diplomats and state-level um, government which will still behave in a rational fashion despite having this person on top. I mean, is the relationship even salvageable? Starmer is a centre-left prosecutor by trade. I mean, is that not Starmer's worst nightmare as a a class of people? He could be arrested touching down in the US, couldn't he? I mean, past Trump to do that. I think you deal with him the same way you would deal with any kind of creep. You... um, you are civil without encouraging further engagement. You only meet in public places and you never go to a secondary location. <laughs> I mean, Mike, is, it's not so much how he handles Trump, you know, personally. Yeah. It's all the other problems that come up. Suddenly, you know, disaster for Ukraine, mm. if, the, if the war is still going on then. Um, disaster for the environment. So it's all these other things. I can't remember. I think, was it Andrew Marr who wrote just one of his depressing pieces? You know, that's one of his lames. <laughs> um, which is just like, think seriously about like what the world looks like in, you know, the West Order under Trump part two. Mm. And it's suddenly like all these other problems that just na- are naturally going to occur where Britain suddenly doesn't have an ally. And, you know. I mean, there is a military strategy that sort of applies to when your opponent is very mercurial that says the default is do nothing because, and I think that applies to Trump actually, if he comes out one day and says X outrageous thing, do nothing because the next day he's Mm. likely to say the Mm. opposite. And if you do something, you're likely to entrench him into X horrible thing. So just quite a hands-off relationship. I choose to believe that he's not going to be really. No, he's not. Good. He's not. For you, that's all right then. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, we had the Queen last time to sort of get him over here. And what have we got now? Well, Charles. <laughs> you know, he might be interested in beating Charles. Yeah. I don't know. It would all seem very, yeah, it would all seem kind of a little he bit pathetic, be, wouldn't it? Be King Charles meeting I a second think, Trump. I don't yeah, think he's Trump sort of done that, hasn't he? He's got his picture. I don't in. think. Shall I predict the American election? Yeah, because yeah, we'll go down the bookies after. Just quickly, just now. So I think the Democrats are waiting for the Republicans to throw everything behind Trump, preparing for a sort of Trump-Biden rematch. And I think the Democrats then will not put Biden forward as a candidate. I think think it will be Trump against someone else. And it will be a really 
bad mismatch and they will the republicans will lose very badly well we should, this, this is a whole other topic isn't it? we should yeah. do that one week Bish, bash, bosh. Before Tony Blair, the last Labour leader to win a general election was Harold Wilson. In 1963, running for the first time, he set out his vision for the future of the Labour conference in Scarborough. He wasn't smoking a pipe at the time, but I think he was. Oh, I want to imagine. He was vague. Yeah, if only I had like, was a, a pipe vague. <laughs> prop. Bright pink disposable. Um, I can't. No, he didn't have a I can't do a Harold Wilson voice, sorry. We are restating our socialism in terms of the scientific revolution, but that revolution cannot become a reality unless we are prepared to make far-reaching changes in economic and social attitudes. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restricted practices or for outdated methods on either side of industry. It's not like that exciting in context, but white heat is very exciting mm-hmm. and the message. And then Tony Blair also sort of took up this baton of technological change. In his 94 conference speech, he coined the phrase New Labour, New Britain. Well done. Very catchy. The following year, he echoed White Heat with promises to make Britain a young country again. I was reading like mm. uh, the Guardian report of that speech, and it actually mentions like White Heat. Can Keir Starmer summon a similarly exciting vision of renewal at this year's conference? And has he learned anything from Wilson as well as Blair? Anthony, you are our Labour history expert. Mm. Um, the phrase White Heat has become so famous that it's associated not just with Wilson, but with the 1960s. Dominic yeah. Sandbrook's book about it is uh, called White Heat. Uh, there's a TV drama called White Heat. Why did that speech make such an impact? Well, it made a huge impact because he won. And we're still talking about Howard Wilson, but it also made a huge impact at the time. A bit of context, which will probably sound familiar to everyone. Uh, by 1963, Labour have lost three elections in a row. There's an old Conservative government that's been around for a long time. <laughs> the economy isn't doing too well. There's a lot of Etonians in the cabinet. And Harold Wilson is the first of his kind of uh, uh, grammar school generation coming up with a different vision for Britain. He wasn't really well known at the time. He'd won the, he'd won the leadership at the beginning of that year, but it was supposed to be Hugh Gateskill who was going to take Labour to victory in the election. And he had to use his first speech to sort of announce himself on the scene mm. with an election coming potentially within a year. And Labour in the 1950s had really struggled with this idea of affluence. You had people who were against televisions and cars and breaking up of the community. And what Wilson does in White Heat is he essentially says, we are the party of the future and we're going to get rid of restricted practices in industry through technology. And he picks science as the thing that's going to be the way out of the mess for Britain. Mm. He, he embodies the idea of change in himself as a, a new person coming through, a new Labour Party, 13 years in opposition, and it's going to be new people with new ideas doing new things. And that's what the speech is about, white heat. Now, later on, historians say he never achieved the goals. But for the purposes of this conversation, we're talking about, you know, trying to win an election and for Keir Starmer to essentially still, even though he's heading the polls, I think he hasn't really had his white heat moment where people go, that's the thing that a future Labour government will do. Where you were talking before about the green Mm. industrial revolution and green growth, you know, can he hang everything that he wants to do around that strategy with a speech, with a with a framing device. Um, that remains to be seen. But the impact of Wilson, that was why it was so big, because people hadn't expected a Labour politician to go out there and sort of encapsulate the future in that way. So Zoe, like I said, it hasn't happened yet, an equivalent speech. Starmer's not a natural orator, but a great speech can work wonders, um, as long as you don't just like 
fuck it up or the sign falls down like with Theresa May. Um, <laughs> is this conference his last chance to sort of pull one out of the bag and go like, this is what we're going to do? Because if, like I mentioned, I mentioned uh, Blair there in 94, 95. He wasn't waiting until 96 mm. to sort of bring out the big guns in the conference speech. I think... Starmer and everyone around Starmer is is setting this up, right? I think they're trying to set this up for a white heat moment. So I don't know if anyone saw Blair's interview in the FT. Um, I think it was yesterday or today. But yeah, they interviewed Blair and he was basically saying that um, AI and tech is going to be the real big policy issue at the next election. And I think that's almost setting Starmer up to talk about how the UK is going to harness tech, AI. When you couple it with this green transition is the speech going to be, this is how we're going to grow Britain, we're going to harness all these new skills, everyone's going to have a job, we're going to become, you know, the next Silicon Valley, but without all the tech millionaires in cabinet, you know, this is going to be from the people, but it's going to be future proof, it's going to be exciting. I think that's what they're trying to set this up for. Now, the question is, can Starmer deliver it with the punch needed can he deliver it in a way that people understand that people are inspired by now they've got labor have got the buzz around them now you know 20 points ahead in the polls everyone thinks they're going to win the next election labor conference you can imagine the atmosphere this will be my first labor conference i attend and i think it's probably going to be quite a good one compared to years gone by yeah 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 it's starting to follow manchester yeah. city in the last yeah. three years no, it's just like it's like coming <laughs> onto the pitch in the 89th minute <laughs> Don't be chill. But yeah, I think it's going to be, it, you know, the, it's almost like if he can't animate people now, when can he do it? So I think he's got a good shot. And I think he's being, you know, Blair, we know Blair is in his ear. We know he's, a, you know, he's advising Starmer and Starmer's modelling self somewhat on Blair. I think they're setting this up. They want to give Starmer his white heat moment. It's just whether he's got the punch to deliver that. Um, Alex, we talked mm. a few weeks back about uh, the age of under-promising, as we called it, a phrase which has completely failed to catch on. Um, and it was really about the failure of grand promises, including Brexit, and you can also Especially say... Especially Brexit. Uh, mainly Brexit, yeah. but also, you know, you could say Corbynism and the sort of visionary there, this sort, yeah. of, sort of failure. And Johnson as a, uh, yeah. of, as a concept. Um, and, but what we didn't say is that this is also an era of backlash against big tech. I mean, I think the story of Elon Musk is almost this, like, perfect mm -hmm. dramatisation of, like... The, the complete death of the utopian promises and the person that says they're going to save the world turns out to be a just sort of thin-skinned, fash-curious <laughs> narcissist. Um, so given that, you know, will a white heat fly? Because I wonder, you know, that if you take the sort of Blair advice, like at the moment, people, people find AI like pretty scary. Yeah. You say AI, people don't go, woo! Um, and I wonder if there's just so much suspicion of both political promises and tech promises that this is really hard to to sell. I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, we ask, why hasn't he had his white heat moment? We also need to ask, would the public be receptive mm. to a white heat moment or would they roll their eyes and go, oh, here we go again. Another great big thing that in one fell swoop will change everything. Mm. And mistrust it, actually. Maybe we are in the age of change by increment. Um, maybe, like you said, because of the suspicion of tech 
um, the vehicle is not appropriate to hang everything on. It's interesting that you mention the Green Plan because that is when I have seen Starmer the most animated. Mm. Yeah. Um, like he made a big speech to the farmers union that I thought was his best speech that I've seen, where he said things like, someone will lead in renewables. Why not us? Hmm. Someone will lead in battery technology. Why not us? Someone will lead in yeah, biotech. Yeah, yeah. Why can't it be us? And to me, that was the most hopeful and complete notion that he presented. But he's not that kind of leader. But I think you're right that the green angle on the future and technology and change yeah. seems more potent than the the, the AI yes, mm. yes. angle, which generally freaks people the fuck yeah, out. And they yeah. think they're going to lose their jobs. Absolutely. You know, at the very least. And they may be right. <laughs> not, yeah. And be under surveyed. I don't know. It's just it's so sort of I, I also think it's really... Fascinating because Sunak is definitely, I think, going to hang his hat on being the guy who can take us into the AI revolution at the next election. If Starmer wants to meet him there, he might struggle because I think, you know, Sunak does seem, if someone's interested in in voting for someone like that, they may pick Sunak because he seems just more well-versed in it. He seems more like a tech bro. And you can imagine that if it was Sunak versus Starmer and it was on tech and AI, people might lean towards Sunak. Whereas the green stuff, and actually, arguably, these two things go hand in hand. They're about innovat- mm-hmm. innovation and technology. I think you're right. I think that's where Starmer really can paint a great vision for the country, something that young people like, something mm-hmm. that older people can mm-hmm. get on board with. You know, just because the Tories have been attacking green policy, which I think they've been doing, by the way, because they know that that could be... The, big, the Labour platform, absolutely, absolutely. Um, doesn't mean it's been sticking. Still, the majority of people are in favour of pushing towards mm. net zero, mm. the green transition. Mm. So I agree. I think that's where Starmer should lead. But I do think, you know, it's not a coincidence that Blair is talking a lot about tech and regulating tech in mm. this morning's papers. Right. Yeah. He loves that though, doesn't oh, he? he? Does. Blair's, he's always <laughs> loved that. He's always just his his whole idea is just like computers, <laughs> like the future. He's a nerd. Um. And see, back to Wilson in 63, mm. right? Um, obviously, once you win, people think you're wonderful. And that's going to happen if Starmer wins the next election. I think we're going to go through a period of people going, well, didn't he play that brilliantly? Um, you said that actually Wilson was quite, he didn't have that much time before the election. He wasn't the, the sort of the chosen son like, like Gateskill was. Was he seen as like, you know, a charismatic winner, exciting? Like his, his educational, I remember reading this, like his educational achievements were phenomenal. Like he was... Like, yeah, well ahead of his time. Like and, kind, yeah. kind of a genius. I mean, he's a, he's, he was such an overachiever. Um, but were there were there vocal sceptics or did people think, oh, this guy is, is hot shit? So as always in the Labour Party, there were huge divides within the party leading up to this white heat speech. You had the Gateskillites who felt a little bit like their nose has been put out of joint by Wilson. And he had to bring the party together, really, with this speech. Labour conferences in the past, you're talking about going to maybe an exciting Labour conference this time, would be real battles about nationalisation, about Europe. And that's one of the problems that Labour had for a long time in the 1950s. People looked at them and thought, absolute rabble uh, in the 1960s. So Wilson had to have something he could bring everyone together around. And that's where the white heat comes from. The media, as soon as he does the speech, are all on to Wilson as this is one of the best speeches we've heard a politician do for a long time. Right. The Times come out and say this is the moment where Wilson has really stepped forward. Mm. And it basically gives Wilson a load of confidence. And at the start of 1964, he goes on a tour of Britain and he just does speeches in lots of different places. 
the Peng Penguin, and I have the book, this is our Saturday, and Penguin published a book of the speeches in the run-up to the election in 1964. That fucking hell. Because, because he was, because he, you know, he was going around and he, he talks about a new Britain, he talks about the old elite of, of Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume and the magic circle who just picked this Tory Prime Minister. So you could see Starmer potentially having a really good conference speech try and imagine it where like everyone says wow mm. and then he builds confidence from that if he doesn't and he has a speech which is a bit like what was that there wasn't really a vision there i mean think about leveling up right that is an unbelievably brilliant phrase that everyone just sort of understands in the tory party and, and voters are like well leveling up that makes sense mm. why is that not labor's strategy well, how did they miss the ball on that yeah, and they haven't got that the yet didn't actually do any leveling do up it. so you, but you, could, a, you could say the phrase but can. we'll do it the campaigning strategy the Tories got the last time with leveling up after Brexit we're going to level up the country and Labour are still trying to find a way to encapsulate the whole programme that the average person down the pub or school gates or whatever can go yeah that that gives me confidence that Labour can actually make Britain great again or whatever it is that Salma wants to do. Well, got so, Trump on the brain now. <laughs> politics writers um, obviously love to cite famous slogans and witticisms from the past, especially when on deadline. Um, do you think that there, the fact that we keep seeing white heat and the ladies not for turning, and even if you asked, you know, us in this room, like, to come up with some famous phrases from political speeches, I don't think, I think we'd probably run out quite quickly. Is it just really hard to sum up an attitude or a moment in one phrase? Like when it's happened, people can instantly go, oh, of course. And it almost seems easy, like mm. take back control seemed easy or, or levelling up or whatever. But we're going, well, when, why doesn't Starmer come up with a mm. two, three word phrase which mm. sums up his vision for the future? Like, does, does sort of history show us that actually there's probably like a giant scrap heap of forgotten slogans that people thought, well, this is the one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, if if you're going to be a bit cynical about it, not everybody in the country watches these speeches or takes them mm. in, but they'll read about them in the paper or they'll read about them online. And quite often they get their news from someone they already agree with. So if one commentator go, comes out and says, that was a great speech, then the person reading it might think, oh, that was a great speech. You know, you can mm. quite easily have things shown to you through someone else's lens. And we have a lot of very vocal commentators around at the minute. I mean, a lot of people are getting their news from Twitter, which is basically opinion rather than news. Um, so I think part of it will be, you know, how much Starmer has got the media on side as well. Um, and of course, then you also have speeches where the content is actually very good, but the delivery is bad. Mm. You know, I mean... For example, Theresa May, I mean, the content of a lot of her stuff wasn't very good, but she was notoriously quite bad at speeches. And it made, often zapped anything about the content of what she was saying because people were just interested in, as you say, the sign falling down or the dance she did on her way to the podium. Yeah. So, um, there, are, you know, there are tons of reasons why speeches are remembered as good or bad. And of course, some of it is the context as well. Sometimes people want a rousing speech that is all about revolution and changing things. Sometimes people want a speech about security. Sometimes people want a speech full of gags and trashing the opposition. You know, it yeah, really yeah, yeah. depends on what the mood is. Um, and, you know, it's I, it's interesting because we were talking about, you know, Alex, you were saying, do people want a white heat moment or, or are they sick of hearing about tech? And, and all do people want another Tony Blair? Yeah, You know, that exactly. is also a question. Or do they want someone with, with less ego that is more of a team, that is more of a sort of professional... Mm. Well, maybe, you know, uh, maybe it's less about the characters that were, you know, like Wilson and Blur and the rest of it. But 
when opposition leaders, you know, you think Thatcher, Cameron Blair, there's not many of them that have taken a party from opposition into government. They all had this unique ability of sort of framing what they were doing as the future and narrating the decline. Mm-hmm. You know, we had broken Britain mm-hmm. for David Cameron, which, you know, was about welfare and all the, pro- you know, all health and safety gone mad and all this stuff. Quangos was a big one. Remember <laughs> that? astonishing Cam- considering how yeah. broken well, it has become. But that's what I mean. Yeah. So, but you, you, you just a little bit with the star, Starmer with the poll lead, you just at the minute don't feel like he's narrated the decline mm-hmm. and framed his own politics around the future. And that's what Wilson did in this speech. And there's still time for Starmer to do it. And if he wins, we'll look back and go, well, that was the moment, Mm. potentially. But this is why it's an interesting conference for him, because I think people are waiting to see what the Labour vision is. Mm. You've got the decline. We understand that. But what are you going to do? Well, finally, one one sort of theory I've got is that we talk about, like, okay, obviously you want to learn from the winners, right? What are you going to learn from Blair? What are you going to learn from from Wilson or or indeed Attlee? Have a world war. That's what you yeah. can learn from Ali. Um, <laughs> you know, you wrote about Labour, you wrote in 2019 about Labour needing to take on the lessons from their 1983 defeat, mm. which is the sort of closest historical analogue. And one explanation I keep hearing for Starmer's caution now is the memory of the shock 1992 defeat. Yeah. Where it's like, you're bound to win, you're bound to win, you're bound to win. Oh, no, you've lost. Absolute trauma. Like the most upsetting uh, election result for many, for many people, more so than 87 yeah. Generation, or, or 83. Yeah. Do you think that Labour is as haunted by its failures as it is inspired by its successes and that that, that that can be that can be a problem and that can lead away from inspiration towards caution i think the 1992 example will become more and more prominent as we approach an election because the conditions are very very similar you have a 1992 election the economy isn't doing very well neil kinnock uh, the year before the 92 election does this brilliant speech that at 1991 party conference season where everyone's like he's the future prime minister he can't really lose from here the times say he's the man mm-hmm. and it, when it comes to the election they just don't get it over the line and for Tony Blair when he creates New Labour that is the memory they never forget that now Starmer hasn't got that institutional memory of a defeat where he thought Labour were going to win I mean he became an MP what was it 2016 he's been there for you know two bad election defeats but obviously the people around him, people like Peter Manderson, Tony Blair, they all will be potentially telling him that it's not over till it's over. And the thing that Blair used to always do in the run-up to 97 was he'd say, not a single vote has been cast. Not you know We have to still fight for every single vote. And I think Starmer, when you look at him, you think he's, he doesn't think he's, he's not got the curtains for number 10. I think he knows that this is going to be a really tough fight to the death. And there'll be Tory, Tories will naturally come back to them when it comes to election time. Mm. But the 1992 defeat will still lingers long in Labour mythology. And I'm sure it will do. But I think the fundamental difference is that Rishi Sunak is an insubstantial politician yes. that keeps making terrible mistakes. I think John Major was quite popular when he came I mean, in. And, and it was the one-party trick. Thatcher was the... They had a one time to yeah. sort of bring someone in. Yeah, yeah. The Tories have done that four times now. So it's I hard mean, to it, do a new government. And, and you look again. at what's happening right now, and Sunak came in with a promise that, you know, he was going to improve the party's polling and actually that his personal popularity was going to drag the party up. And he's now polling worse than the party. Mm. He's dragging the party down and their polling is going back down. So that's the difference, I think. And I don't think you can underestimate that difference. And there may be value 
to Starmer's strategy. We mustn't, we mustn't confuse what we would like to see with what might work. It is possible that oh. if the country is driven, <laughs> but it's possible it's that if the country is driven by an overwhelming wish mm. for yeah. a change mm. to get these people out of government, actually to put detail and color into that change might put a few people off that change, giving them a sort of blank thing that they can go, he's safe enough on everything. This lot are out of ideas might actually be quite an effective strategy. I don't know. It's not what I want to see. We will talk in the extra bit, if you were a Patreon backer, um, about how sort of history, how, how, how things change in hindsight. Mm. And how suddenly something that you think is perhaps a dubious strategy becomes brilliant and vice versa. <laughs> yeah. We've reached the end of the show. So what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Uh, Anthony, you're our guest. You start. So I was looking at... Uh, the story of the 25th anniversary of the Royal Family, the TV show, mm. tomorrow. And a piece that I read um, in Tribune magazine uh, about the show, and it just got me thinking about working class culture and working class in the arts. Would a show like that now be made by the BBC, which was essentially rooted in a very sort of working mm. class community? And it was just very, very unique the way that that show came on the BBC. Carolina Hearn, who wrote The Royal Family, she had a lot of battles to get that show produced the way that she wanted it to. I feel, you know, there's a lot of lack of access to the arts for working class people now. Mm. It's a great show. Are they are they re-showing it then? I think yeah. they're doing, a, I think they're doing a 25th anniversary special documentary about it. I was reading, yeah. Zoe? Um, so I talk about housing a lot on this podcast when I get the chance to, and that's... A, because I'm a millennial, and B, because I used to live in a flat where I had to scrape mould off my pillow every night before bed. So um, I'm always a bit angry about um, the housing situation in this country. And it got me thinking about rack because we, we know a lot about rack in schools, you know, mm. the aerated concrete uh, crisis. We know about it in hospitals. Just earlier this week, they found that there was rack in a block of flats in Southampton. And now ministers are being called on to do an audit of all social housing in the UK. And not only could that be the next big crisis, but I'm thinking about all the uh, private blocks of flats owned by leaseholders. Mm. What happens when they find out they get rack? who pays for the repairs. And I just think this is going to be such a disaster because you've got a number of people who can barely afford their rent and bills. And then if they have to pay thousands to sort out concrete that was in their flat from the 80s, it's just going to be another huge crisis for the government. And I bet they're shitting themselves. So, yeah, another that's my crisis. extra bit. <laughs> um, Alex. Um, so mine is from PMQs, and it's weird to talk about something from PMQs as flying under the radar. And yet it is, because I think... Not everyone watches it. I think a lot of journalists are quite herdy. They tend to latch onto one thing. And today, everyone latched onto inaction, man, which is a brilliant mm. turn of phrase, actually, and I think will really stick to Sunak. But something important happened in the next question. Um, so Starmer said to um, Sunak, no one uh, voted for this shambles. No one voted for you. How much more damage will the pu British public have to endure before you give them a say? Mm -hmm. 
That to me is his first time from the dispatch box challenging the prime minister to an election. And most people seem to have missed it. And to me, that's quite important because this challenge to an election is the ratchet that doesn't go back the other way. So once you turn it one notch to when you, will you give the people a say, the next notch is you have to call a general election and, and it's coming. Something says to me that Labour think they can force a general election earlier than most people think. That's my reading of it. Because otherwise, this is very hard line to sustain for a year. Mine is it's relatively trivial. Um, but it was interesting to me. Um, last week, we were talking about um, shapsism, which is the uh, problem of people yes, being cycled through departments too quickly <laughs> and not really knowing what they're doing there or achieving anything. Um, and a little, little grant, I think, is the epitome of that. And there was a silly little fuss about Thangam Debonair, the new Shadow Secretary of Culture, Media and Sport, because she'd never been to a football or rugby match. She's just a boring old former professional cellist who's married to an <laughs> opera singer. And I was just like, OK, right, you know, yes, it's sport. OK, she hasn't been to those particular... Oh, I think it's hurtful. Well, so I mean, maybe she, <laughs> maybe, does she want yeah. a copy of that? Maybe, well, there we go. She's listening. Send, I will absolutely. Last minute I'll take you to the game. <laughs> yeah. I'll take you to the first But one. it did make me think, like, what, what are the culture bona fides of the eight people who have held the ministerial brief since it was established mm -hmm. in 2017? Lucy Fraser, Michelle Donnelly, um, nobody... I had to look these up. Yeah, who are yeah, these? Yeah, Nobody yeah. knows these. Lucy Fraser, people. Michelle Donnellan, Nadine <laughs> Doris, Oliver Dowden, Nikki Morgan, Jeremy Wright... Made up, yeah. doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> Matt Hancock and Karen Bradley, and it's like obviously N Nadine Doris is a, is a literary superstar. Um, <laughs> but you know, apart from that, I'm just like, were they quizzed on like how many of these people do you think? Oh, well, Matt Hancock, he's he has a huge well, understanding of Nadine Doris. Do you remember her rugby gaff? She rugby league World Cup last year. She went up she to St Helens, and she was like, "Oh, you know, fantastic rugby league World Cup." And she started talking about Johnny Wilkinson's drop yeah, goal yeah, yeah, yeah. and how she'd had a prosecco. Yeah. And it's the complete other sport, you yeah. know. Yeah. And there's a huge divide between rugby league and union. So you know, yeah, it's not I just mean, labor, it, it just seems silly. I just thought that Thang Rebbe was perhaps overqualified. <laughs> yeah. you it's know. a ludicrous yeah. brief, right? Like, who is an <laughs> expert in newspapers, TV, digital, <laughs> social? Tech, sport, sports. and I then mean, all the culture music, and all the theater, sport. Because art. I mean, who is an expert in all so of those things? I used to work there as a policy advisor, and we called it the Department oh. of Fun. <laughs> that's very thick of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. I was a civil servant. Did you? Um, so, were the people very? You know, were they Slagging bursting with cultural knowledge? So, I was in TV policy. Right. Okay. Um, which. I, I was working for, at the time it was Oliver Dowden who very famously mm. watched The Crown and wasn't best pleased with it oh yes, yes yes yeah. but yeah I mean there was all sorts going on there and then and they were also dealing with the online safety bill which is basically needs its own it's department still yeah yeah because it's, it's such a huge <laughs> yeah. enormous piece of legislation so you're totally right I mean who's qualified for all of that <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Th I think it's fine also I used to be a cellist not professional yeah. <laughs> not remotely but I you know it's good to see cellists getting some power at last mm. A good instrument. That's the show. Thank you to Alex. My pleasure. Zoe. Thank you. And our guest, Anthony Broxton. Pleasure. Stick around for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a hat tip to our generous supporters. You two could join them. Get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots, lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon. 
A huge bit of gratitude for Jonathan Jones and Sean Topping from me. And thanks to Steve P and Nick Miles. And thank you to Gwen Quigley and Dermot Patrick Fanning. I'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Zoe Grunewald. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Sunday with Laura Kunzberg host Laura Kunzberg brings us a new documentary, Laura Kunzberg, State of Chaos. <laughs> the first episode deals with the aftermath of the referendum and Theresa May's takeover and the arrival of Boris Johnson. Foreign Office officials who are speaking on camera for the first time said it was impossible to have a plan for what came after the referendum result. If you haven't watched it already, we have. Uh, Zoe, what did you learn from the first episode? Was there much that was new? I learned that everybody was exactly as I thought they would be and would reflect on things exactly as I thought they would. Um, Nadine Dorries was absolutely delusional about Boris Johnson. Theresa May's advisors were... Nick Timothy was whatever, and um, is it Fiona Hill? The other one was seemed pretty damaged by the whole thing, actually, I thought. Which Mm. was actually... I'd never really... That's interesting. I'd never really seen much of Fiona. Um, And you hear a lot about Nick Timothy now. I think, is he running as a Conservative candidate? Yeah. And what I did think was interesting about that, actually, was the difference between Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill and the way they responded. I did think there was something quite gendered there about how she felt she had been thrown Mm. under the bus and yet he carried on Mm. as normal. And and it made me reflect a little bit more empathetically towards Theresa May because I also did feel, and I felt it a bit at the time, that some of the bullying from her party was pushing her around. And I wonder if that would have happened to the same extent had she not been a woman. Not absolutely forgiving her for all the things you know she still was a conservative prime minister and a home secretary that resided over quite a lot of questionable policies but um, I do think that was quite interesting what I didn't particularly agree with was quite um, at the beginning Laura Koonsberg basically said anyone who'd been paying attention wouldn't have been surprised by the result of the Brexit referendum now if I remember correctly everyone was quite surprised by the result of the Brexit not Laura well, yeah, not oh, not long. Sorry, coming. But she, just she, didn't tell anyone. She then goes on to say, you know, <laughs> Boris Johnson and Michael Gove were totally blindsided, and they were campaigning for it. So this idea that civil servants had been sat on their asses not planning yeah, was yeah. a bit irritating. There were some curious narrative choices. One that I resented, and I would do this as a boring old Romaniac. <laughs> but there's a bit where she is talking about like polarization massive polarisation and anger and she goes this didn't look or feel like Britain it was very extremist and there's literally some footage of the People's Vote March which I went on yeah which was extremely fucking jolly handing out cups of tea yeah jolly reasonable and it was like this isn't fucking you know Paris 68 or something (laughs) it's not like there's not like not people throwing like petrol bombs it's it was just like a march and she was very much going in that like sort of BBC way just like Oh, a lot of anger on both sides, <laughs> and it's like yeah, but you at least have, you at least can can you find a picture of some anger then, rather than a picture of a quite reasonable protest. Mm. So there were framing choices that 
that I found strange. Mm. Um, Alex, the big news line here is that uh, Simon McDonald, former Foreign Office chief, reveals for the first time that he told his civil service colleagues that he voted Remain in order to sort of make them feel better and going like, look, I know you're all disappointed. Yeah. I'm disappointed too, but, you know, we go and do our jobs. Has he done anything wrong here? Another civil servant goes, oh, well, that's a bit of a breach of partiality. I don't think so. I think it's nonsense. Well, you're both, you, you're former civil servant. Yeah, yeah. You're I'm former got, civil servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not former civil servant. <laughs> Although I have to say the, the code for senior civil service is different. Right. So when I made the transition, I think it was to G6 when I was in the civil service, I had to sort of study and sign a completely new set of rules that, was a lot more restrictive, right? Um, but but the the context of what he said was because people were, and that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. It's very good. So if you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour. Sign us up. Sorry. Sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, and some merchandise offers and a sense of enormous well-being. Thank you for listening and see you next week.